This is Tango Bravo. Hey everybody, welcome back to Tango Bravo. I'm Frank, and I'm here with Blake, Nick, and a special guest, Shane. We're going to get into what training was like after boot camp. I'm Blake. I was an A1C in the United States Air Force. I was security forces stationed in Minot, North Dakota. I did two years of a six-year hitch. So the thing you need to understand about security forces in general before our tech school really makes any sense is what the mission of security forces is. Security forces was developed to essentially be a counterpart to the Marine Corps, where the Marines are general security for the Navy and ground troops. Security forces is general security for the Air Force and essentially sometimes referred to as the Army or Marine Corps of the Air Force. It's about, in a given time, around 40,000 security forces members. And we're trained in multiple different areas. So we're trained to be police officers on base. We're trained to run security missions, convoys. We're trained to do various types of special tasks similar to a civilian SWAT team. We have EST teams, which are um, for emergency security entries. So the training is very complicated, involves a lot of different sections. On the police side, we do a lot of training on the Uniform Code of Military Justice to the point that we understand that to a level of legality to function as a police officer. So there's a huge amount of classroom training on that. We do tactical training and we learn how to use multiple weapon systems. At the time I was in, I was an M60 machine gunner. So that was a special weapon system that we went and got trained on, which was a separate track from people that were trained as grenadiers. They go down a different side of training. Um, we're organized in a way very similar to Marine Corps units in that we function as fire teams. We have different kinds of regiments and all that. So there's an expansion from basic training into that sort of training surrounding bearing, discipline, understanding who's in front of you, rank and file, things like that. There's a physical component to the training uh, because the mission is very diverse. So with that all born in mind, uh, we arrived at tech school, which is you take a bus on Lackland across from the basic training side and you go over to where the tech school's at. And we show up and it's kind of similar in a way to arriving at basic, you all line up. Some people are assigned uh, as element leaders. There we call them ropes because they actually add a rope to their uniform, goes over their shoulder. Um, the equivalent of element leaders get a green rope and then there's yellow ropes and above that there's red ropes. It's kind of a ranking system. You have to earn each level. And those are basically kind of the leaders of each group. Um, in tech school, we do various situational training. 
We do field operations training. We do land navigation training, which we actually did out on an army base. It's called Camp Bullis. So we got to go wander around Texas and you know do a bunch of field work. But we also do some pretty advanced um, kind of situational training. There was a system, I can't remember what it was called. I want to say it was called MCATS. But in that era, it was actually run by LaserDisc and different situations uh, would come up that uh, it was the same thing that LA SWAT uses or used at the time for their tactical training for in rooms. There's a massive video screen in front of you and you'll arrive at a variety of different situations. And there's a, a uh, training instructor in the room that will adjust what the situation is and escalate or deescalate depending on what you're doing. So you'll essentially show up on scene to something. You're graded on your weapon safety, your situational safety, your situational awareness, how well you de-escalate the situation, and basically how you handle it. We also do that as in-room training. Um, we're trained to arrive at everything from domestic disputes to you know, suicide attempts to just all kinds of insane stuff. So it's kind of, it's 10 weeks, I want to say. It's right around there, like nine and a half weeks, something like that. And it's very, very intense. You're learning a massive amount. It's broken into three phases. Um, we do a lot of like weird field training. Like we learn how to low crawl, which civilians think they see in the movies. That's actually a high crawl when you see it in the movies. Low crawl is you plant your ass on the ground, like straight down. Your chest is buried in the dirt and mud. And you basically use your helmet as a bulldozer in front of you while you kick your leg without lifting your knee to grind across the ground while the dirt is sandpapering off the side of your face. So if you do it right, at the end of you know a day, one side of your face will be bare and bleeding, and the other side will look perfect. And that's actually one of the ways that they would kind of grade on whether you're doing it right or not. You got to remember you're hauling your weapon and everything else with you. In my case, a 60 gun, which really sucks because that thing is a pig and it's heavy. They don't use those anymore. But... Um, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things was one of the situations I arrived at was a, uh, the situation was I arrive in a room. It was reported to me outside of the room, essentially equivalency of a radio call, that it was a domestic dispute and it had been called in by the neighbors. You open the door in the room, you see one airman acting um, and they have a rubber knife and they're saying they're going to kill themselves. You have to clear the room, clear anything else in the space, understand who's in the space, very rapidly deal with the fact that they have a knife, try to de-escalate the situation, calm them down. And there's all kinds of different things, like they'll act and react to things that you do. So there's a weapon in the room. So an instinct might be to draw your weapon, which is absolutely correct. However, in that situation, it was actually kind of interesting. 
I actually got downgraded on that because it was considered to, the way that I drew it was considered to raise escalation. So you actually, every little thing is judged, like how you do things supposed to have a certain subtlety so that you don't add to the situation. You don't make it worse. Um, and there's, you round robin on these things. So there's, you enter an area and there's a whole ton of different rooms. You go into a room and it's one situation. You finish, you get graded on that. You get feedback, you go to the next room. It's a completely different situation and on down the line. And you would do that both physically, also with MCATs. People would occasionally, you know, act like they're going to attack you, all kinds of different stuff. Um, other things that were interesting about the training were we actually got some martial arts training. Generally, it's Aikido based. Um, things like Nikio and Ikkyo grips, in case somebody's trying to grab your weapon, those work really well to allow you to retain your weapon. You're judged on weapon retention, all kinds of other stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you go through all that. And then meanwhile, you're also going through a bunch of intense classroom training. Um, in our tech school, you were two to a room in a dorm room, usually with somebody that's in a different phase, um, usually in a different flight entirely. And... You had a decent amount of freedom on like weekends, like you could through phase one, you could hang out up on the, uh, there's like a patio thing and planes are flying over all the time because it's an air force base, but you could hang out out there in phase two, you could actually go to designated smoking areas and smoke and you could wear civvies off base in phase three. You're basically a standard airman. And then the rest of my tech school story is after I graduated, uh, I actually had to wait on a security clearance and personal reliability program because I was going to a missile base. So you end up kind of hanging out on Lackland waiting for that to clear through. And for that, we hung out in a thing called grad flight. Basically grad flight helps run the tech school. So we would dorm up on the Medina side of the base and we would assist with running GIMP flight, which is basically everybody that's on some kind of injury, making sure that they had duties of the day and we would manage the security of the tech school site, all the gates around and everything like that. And some of us would get assigned to basically be baby pushers, which is basically ensuring that people in phase one end up at the places they're supposed to be, like that they get chow in the morning, that they do their morning PT, things like that. And that was really about the experience. Break you up. <clears throat> I'm Private First Class Frank Cobran, United States Marine Corps. I was infantry with 3rd Light Armor Reconnaissance Battalion. So I went to the School of Infantry West, and that is on Camp Pendleton in San Diego, California. Uh, so after after boot camp, you get shipped over there after your, uh, you have a 10-day leave period, and you arrive into receiving, and you get sorted into your company. For me, it was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, I had 
joined boot camp when i joined the marine corps to go to boot camp uh i joined with my best friend on the buddy program and unfortunately in boot camp i got very sick and ended up getting dropped uh i had to go to, i was in the hospital for a couple weeks and so i ended up graduating about three weeks later than he did and i thought i would never see him again fortunately for me when i picked up with the schoolhouse and the school of infantry uh, he was sitting there and he had gotten stuck with the rest of my buddies in receiving for three weeks bef- uh, because they were standing up a new company, Echo Company, that had never been run through before. And so we ended up picking up with Echo Company together. Uh, so we picked up with Echo Company and we started to go through the infantry course. And for the first month of School of Infantry training, you go through you know, like a basic rifleman course. So you learn how to become a basic infantryman. Um, so you're learning how to use your weapon in, in as a combat arm. You're learning how to, to do table two, which is essentially uh, like combat shooting of your, of your rifle. Uh, you're learning how to use different weapon systems. Uh, so we trained on the AT4 rocket launcher, uh, we trained on the M203 grenade launcher. Uh, you learn how to breach. Uh, you go through mount, which is a, basically urban urban environment training. Uh, and you go through these these like shoot houses, these kill houses. Uh, and so you're you're going through all of this physical training, and you're also you know learning classes. Now, the, the great thing about School of Infantry, that's the first time when you really started to get treated like a Marine. In boot camp, you're a recruit, but by the time you've hit the schoolhouse, you're you're a Marine. So you get treated with a lot more respect and, and you have a lot more privileges. You know, you can go to the smoke pit and smoke a cigarette if you want to. Uh, you have weekends off and, you know, weekends off are always fantastic. <laughs> we're, in, we're in San Diego. So, of course, we're going to the beach. We're going to Oceanside and, and partying every weekend. Uh, you know, so I've got some crazy stories, you know, for my time in school of infantry. Uh, so for that first month though, you're, you're, you're going through, you know, this intense, you know, rifleman training, weapon system training, uh, you're learning, you're going through an IED course to learn how to spot IEDs, you know, what to look for. Uh, you're going through medical training. You're going through MICMAP, which is the Marine Corps martial arts program. So you learn a lot of grappling and, and hand to hand weapons of opportunity, things like that. Uh, going through extensive, uh, they call them humps, they're basically long hikes to get you conditioned. You're at this point, now that you're, you're at a boot camp, you're, you're carrying larger weapon systems and the hikes are more intense. Uh, aboard, aboard Camp Pendleton, I mean, you're, you're hiking in mountainous terrain at this point. And so you're, you're getting conditioned for like extreme, you know, mountain, you know, 15 K humps. After the first month of school of infantry, that's when you, you split off into your occupational specialty. So there's, there's multiple different occupations within the infantry community. So you have your 0311, your infantry rifleman, you have your 0331, which is your machine gunner, 0341, which is your mortarman, AKA tube strokers. Uh, You have your 0351 assault men, and so you really kind of get to essentially you, you get to choose. Uh, I went uh, as a infantry rifleman, and so I split up with with my group and and we we learned more advanced you know warfare training. 
and infantry, you know, other infantry training. Uh, but essentially, it's a two-month course. Month one is the basic, you know, infantry course, and then month two is more specialized for your actual occupation. Um, I had a lot of fun. I, I thought infantry. I mean, I always dreamed of being infantry, so I had a fucking blast uh, going going through all the training and and learning how to how to be the most badass infantryman I I can be. Uh, you know, the the mission of the Marine Corps Rifle Scout is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy with fire maneuver and repel the enemy's assault by fire in close combat. And that's essentially exactly what you learn. Some of the most fun I ever had in School of Infantry was just learning urban warfare. They had these these big villages set up that were basically like these... these Iraq, it was simulating basically an Iraqi village with these big cinder block buildings with different types of doorways and hallways. And, and so we would, you know, go through shoot houses and, uh, they, they split us up into, into two groups. And one was the op four, uh, AKA opposing forces, essentially the, they were simulating Iraqis or Afghanis. And, and then we would be the, the Americans and then we would switch and it was, you're using, you know, either sim rounds, you know, which is essentially a augmentation to the M4 that allows it to shoot nine millimeter casings that have a nine millimeter plastic projectile with with paint inside of it. Basically, really souped up paintball guns. And so we're either using that or we're using, uh, you know, blank rounds to, to shoot at each other. And yeah, you basically go through through that. So really like the last part of School of Infantry is really going through that like intense warfare training. Um, you know, from there, that's that's when we get our orders to, you know, our our battalion, where we're going to be in the Fleet Marine Force. And uh, luckily for me, I got to go through boot camp with my best friend, went through School of Infantry with my best friend, pretty much a one in a million chance of that. And then, you know, on the second or third to last day, we got our orders and we found out that we were going to third light armor reconnaissance battalion out in shithole 29 bombs. And so, you know, luckily for us, we spent our entire careers together, but that's essentially school of infantry. You're just uh, honing your skills as, as an infantryman and learning your occupational specialty and uh, just becoming proficient. And uh, that's basically it. Cool. Shane, I think we should, I think since you're the guest, I think you, Maybe you go last after Nick, but I think you should you should do like pol police police training. Okay. I mean, I mean obviously you're going to be a recurring guest, but yeah, I think it only makes some sense. A lot of sense, really. It's kind song. of it's kind of perfect because you didn't go through boot camp; you went through. Yeah, went I went through training. a very boot camp like. It's not. I can explain the difference, I guess, and just. I don't think you need to explain the difference. I think you just need to explain exactly what you right. do. You do your right. monologue. You said Medina Annex, and that was a complete throwback. I was just like, whoa. I probably left out a bunch of shit. Was it good? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, okay. There's actually great crosstalk there, because I forgot, because when we went through Urban Warfare, we actually used uh, Miles gear and yeah. like fire adapters. Yep. It was just, it's like wild. BFAs. I could yeah. use simulations too. It was so much fun. Like in IT Fuck. fundamentals, they're like, this is a USB. It means universal serial bus. <laughs> I swear to God, I thought you were going to say something else. What was I going to say? The other USB. What is that for real? The universal soft butt plug of the Air Force. That's the Navy. Oh, excuse me. My apologies. 
My name is Nick. I was a staff sergeant in the United States Air Force. I was stationed at Ramstein Air Base, Germany and Pope Army Airfield, North Carolina. So once I graduated basic training, you gather up all your stuff and we got on a plane and flew to Keesler Air Force Base, Mississippi. And once you get there, it's just some simple in-processing, some briefs about not disrespecting the local people, understanding that you're a guest in the community and the incredibly high rate of STDs in Biloxi. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, once, once that happens, I mean, you get down to your actual schoolhouse training. And for my career field, which was 3D OX2, cyber systems operations, it's a four month training broken up into four blocks. But no one really gets to go seamlessly into training. So I spent about two weeks before going into training, pushing a mop around. And there are probably 50 of us waiting to go to class. So you spend all day mopping the floor and then you go back and you mop it again and again, and you do that for eight hours a day. But eventually you get to go to your first block of training and that's IT fundamentals. And the whole purpose of that is to teach you the most bare bones IT knowledge. It's designed for a person who's never touched a computer. I mean, they go down to the most rudimentary level of this is a mouse. And for a lot of people, I guess that was important because you don't get to pick your job, you're just given this. So you actually have to go and learn kind of the inner workings of a computer. Fortunately for me, I was a, you know, a PC hobbyist. So things like RAM and hard disk drives, that was all second nature to me. But for other people, I mean, you gotta know what RAM does if you're gonna work on a, a server system. That lasted two weeks and then we go into uh, Windows Server Administration, which is a pretty basic course. It's just enough to make you dangerous when you get there, but not enough to actually teach you how to do your job. Then you go into Database Administration, where they only teach you SQL Plus. And your second to last block is Unix. And they really gloss over Unix because such a small portion of the Air Force does it. They even tell you, eh, if you're going to put any effort into it, make sure you put all your effort into Windows administration and learn that because that's what you're going to do. And the majority of us did that. We studied Windows and we tried to beef up our skills on our own time. Lucky me, I ended up being a Unix administrator at my first duty station. So take all your trainings very seriously, no matter what they say. And then finally, after that, you go into CompTIA Security Plus training. Uh, I believe that's called 8570 compliance. And to work on any sort of computer systems in the DOD, you have to have Security Plus or better. So even though it's a certificate that you're supposed to have, I think like three to five years of industry standard experience to, to get, you're supposed to get it with just four months of training. And that's kind of the hardest thing you do because you go to the class and then they give you two weeks of free study time and you put your head in your books 12 hours a day. Because I mean, that's the last thing. And if you didn't pass it, you got kicked out. You got kicked out of the career field and you were reclassed into something entirely different. Majority of people ended up going to services, which is you either work at the, the base gym or in the dining facility. So for a lot of us, it was like, wow, this is a a huge difference in what we do mission-wise, but also what you set yourself up for in the future. Thankfully, you know, I pass all that stuff and 
graduated on time. But other than that, your day-to-day -day mission in tech school is, I mean, you wake up, you march to class. It's Mississippi in the middle of summer. It's hot as can be. You march back afterwards, you do PT. And then you have the, the evenings off to, to study, hang out with uh, your fellow airmen. You have the weekends off, like pretty much everyone, I believe, across all branches of the military. And, you know, you, you get out, they force you to do some volunteer work and do some good in the community. But all in all, it's not a bad experience. It's probably my least favorite time of you know, the time I spent in the military because it is a it's just that limbo period in between basic training, which everyone's like, OK, I'm gung ho. I'm going to do this and get it over with. And the thing that you're really looking forward to, which is your operational Air Force experience. But you just put your head down, you get through it and you learn as much as you can. So do, oh, never mind. I'll ask you when, you, when we do crosstalk. Crosstalk. Sir. I live for crosstalk. I do. Who doesn't? You know, these savages out here never even did Special Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> I did the Special Olympics twerk run in the academy with uh, the run at park leg of it. Oh, I'm excited to hear that story. You picked up my, my CD in broad daylight and you scratched it. <laughs> Kind of a bummer. I had pictures from it and I lost them when I broke my laptop. So for Shane, I feel like, cause you basically had, yours is probably the most similar to mine cause it, mine's also somewhat cop training, but you <laughs> yeah. also have like a basic training and then you also have the cop training but it's all stacked. So, so you want me to go into from yeah, I would go from the academy beginning. to field training. Yeah, I would go all the way through because if you just drop straight into FTO, it's a little like right. confusing. I agree, bro. Can uh, can we have Frank give us a segue though, where he says you know, yes? As I mentioned, we have a we have a special guest who's going to talk about some law enforcement training. We'll see the similarities between LEOs and military members. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys, so as I mentioned, we have a special guest here today, Shane, who uh, was a police officer. And so he's going to talk about what it was like uh, in police training. And we'll see what the similarities were and, and what the differences were. And, and uh, we'll, we'll discuss it later in the crosstalk. Uh, my name is Shane. Um, I was a police officer for one year with the city of Lake here in California. Um, so I went to the academy in 2015. Yeah, 2015. Put myself through it. I actually, I didn't do the intensive academy, which is 40 hours a week, full-time, eight hours a day. I did the part-time one because I needed to pay my way through it. So I would go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night for four to five hours. Sometimes Friday, that same time. Eight hours on Saturday. And then sometimes, you know, Friday would be an hour a day, or like I said, another four or five hour night class. Um, and then when I wasn't there, I basically was working um, a full-time job. So I had no days off for the year. So that was probably the hardest part was that grind. Um, as far as the, the actual, the way the academy was, it was a lot of classes early on. They split it up into modules. Um, so from like January to March, it was really just classrooms, um, you know, learning law, first aid, de-escalation, um, 
you know, nomenclature for guns, um, anything book related that you can do for law enforcement, you did in those classes. And then Saturday, generally, there was a split between the range and de defensive tactics. Um, the second module encompassed the, the summer and it became more practical use of what you learned. Still a lot of book stuff, because um, you know there's a lot of a lot of stuff to learn. Um, and then by the time you get to the third one, it's still way more practical. You're in the classroom less. You're preparing for your scenarios. You're preparing for your tests. Um, and then as far as the day to day stuff in terms of like dealing with the RTOs and your classmates, um, you know, uniform always had to be pressed. Boots needed to be shined. Um, there's marching, formation. You know, we raised the flag every day, lowered it every night. Um, standing at attention for police officers that were on duty or staff that were there to teach us. Um, and then it wasn't super intense like some academies can be, um, or like you would see in the movies, but there's definitely yelling. And looking back, even then, we kind of guessed some of it was manufactured um, to try and stress you out, get in your head, see if you're going to crack, see if you're going to slip up and do something stupid like talk back, um, group punishment, push-ups, the whole, all that fun stuff. Um, you know, doing my academy, I got to build friendships with a lot of people. I went to the class with, still talk to them six years, seven years later now. So it was stressful, it was hard, but it was, you know, I got to go home every day, which you don't get to do in military, the military basic training and stuff like that. Um, fast forward three years, I get hired by Clearlink, start my field training. Very stressful, very overwhelming, lots of yelling again, uh, mainly because when you do something fucking stupid, they want to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, and again, it's split up into phases where, you know, the first phase, you, you don't do, you slowly get introduced to doing stuff, your training officer will kind of do at least everything once to show you. And then they kind of help still guide you. And then as you go forward, you're doing more and more by yourself. Um, so by the time I get to third phase, I should you should be able to operate on your own and occasionally need your FTO's help. Because in shadow, you're being shadowed by lieutenant or cap captain, whoever's in charge of the program and they aren't helping you. They're just observing. So in the academy with Evoc, it starts off pretty basic. You're either in the SUV or a Crown Vic. Um, Crown Vics are fun to drive. Um, <laughs> you know, again, it starts pretty basic and then it ramps up to practicing pursuits. You're not going super fast, but it's 
Um, you're just chasing a, another one of the instructors in another car. Um, but and then for the range, um, I had to buy a buy my gun for the for the academy that I use all throughout it. Um, that was a Glock 17. Um, basically, the only requirement was it had to be a nine or a forty because that was the, the rounds that they had at the academy. Um, so we did that, you know, the standard distances, just straight on. What was yours? I said Glock 17. Oh, what? Chambered in what? Oh, I had the, the nine. 17's the nine. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we can cut that bit because most people know about firearms. I mean, not the Marine, but other uh, people. I kind of want to leave it in just because it's a really funny moment. No, don't gets. leave that shit in. Don't embarrass me like that. I know that it's a fucking nine. I don't know why. All right, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. It was uh, a strong question. So for those of you who didn't hear me, I had the Glock 17. Uh, Frank. Uh. So the range was pretty basic at first. Dude, just from distances, you know, strong hand two-hand support going back eventually they bring in the one, no support or one hand support weekend um night shooting um then we get to shotguns same thing when they have to do the shotgun at different distances with the the uh, buckshot and then the slug rounds um thankfully i wasn't one of those people that didn't uh hold it incorrectly so i didn't have a bruise on my face or broken nose like other people around the academy uh did particularly the uh, park rangers <laughs> oh yeah so at this academy there's multiple things going on because it's a public safety training center so at any time you would have fire uh paramedics in the in, you know ems training park ranger park rangers and then I think at one point we had three academies on there at one time, uh, police academies. So there's a lot going on. And then they also do the police training there as well. So different agencies would send people and then have training there as well every once in a while. Um, but going back to the range, once we had got past the test for just standing there and shooting, that's when they worked in the moving in the different sequences where we, our test was basically, you move how they instruct you to move to the positions they tell you to move, um, which would mix shooting while you move, shooting from a knee, shooting prone, um, and then different sequences. So like at different spots, you had to shoot two rounds, or this one you had to shoot one, this one you had to shoot three. And you failed obviously if, you didn't do any of it correctly. And that even had night shooting, so that was interesting. Um, but eh, we didn't do ARs or anything like that. It was just handguns and, and shotgun. So my first fight with a suspect on training, I'm in second phase, graveyard. Um, we go to a domestic violence thing. On, at this house in the and uh, we go 
contact the victim. She's messed up. He's drunk, maybe high, bitter nose, punched her. She's covered in blood. Um, find out the suspect is in a trailer in the backyard. So we go out, me and my, my FTO go out. I'm calling out, hey, police department. Need you to step out, blah, 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 blah. This dude very quickly runs out of the trailer and is on top of me. And I had no time to, you know, get a taser, pepper, nothing. I couldn't, if he had a knife, I wouldn't have had time to shoot him. Um, luckily he didn't, he was just drunk and he was wrestling with me. So I was able to eventually get him in cuffs. You know, I did some DT stuff, nothing major. Um, I had trouble getting his hand out at one point. So he, at the extraction of my FTO, who, by the way, just is standing there, basically coaching me like a boxing corner, MMA <laughs> corner. Just, oh, you're doing great. Oh, no, oh, you got it. You got the arm away. Oh, try some knee, distra- knee strikes for distraction. Get his arm. Oh, there, there you go. Good job. All right. Um, so I was able to handle it. I think the whole thing lasted like 30 seconds. Um, by the way, it's also very hard to wrestle a guy who's drunk, sweaty, and not wearing a shirt. Um, slippery. Slippery. <laughs> um, also, it's dark, so I can't see shit. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, it, it really just out of nowhere, he's running out of this dark trailer and is on top of me in no time flat. And I'm fighting with a guy. Well, this is the thing, too, that I don't think a lot of people that haven't done law enforcement or combat or something else don't really realize is because I mean, you're walking down the street you might get into a fist fight with a guy but there's going to be signs that it's going to happen there are these light switch moments in law enforcement that you're literally like you don't even have time to think about it it just happens yeah and that's something where like you know i'll hear civilians say oh i got pulled over by this dick cop and he had his hand on his gun his whole time like yeah those are those are there for a reason in their safety procedures because he has no idea what you're going to do. Like zero idea what's going to happen next. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I'm in my car. Yeah, I've seen people slam a door open and knock a cop to the fucking ground. And it's that fast. And you just have no idea. And I mean, that's it. I mean, I've told multiple people I've known that are like, oh, yeah, I want to go into law enforcement. I'm like, do you? Do you really? You might want to think about that because it's a lot more than you think it's going to be. And it is sudden. Like it's snake bite sudden, like light switch, like everything's cool. And then something's going down. And for Frank, similarly, I'm assuming in combat situations, I never served in a combat situation, but when the shit hits the fan, the shit can hit the fan real fast. Yeah, I mean that's why you're you're trained. Uh, you know, I'm sure this relates to everybody. You know, keep your head on a swivel, 360 degrees, search low, search high. You know, 
You never know when it's where it's going to come from. Uh, the fight is not linear. No. Let me just take leave with this this next one. You yeah. know, I, I I think I can just like ask a question directly to Shane. I mean, Shane being the guest, we could kind of you know focus some questions towards him. I think. Yeah. yeah. The the thing I want to talk about next, I think, would be uh, like scenario trainings. And, and I think this might be kind of a hard one for you, but oh, my scenarios are the hardest. But I, I was yeah, yeah. Resync a database. <laughs> God, fucking cock sucking lighter. <laughs> That's not where I thought he was going, but <laughs> no. I was like, yes, I finally get my Frank reacts to Nick moment. Exactly. <laughs> the struggles of adapting to Unix. I still have to use I have a feeling you're going to get a few reactions tonight. I do think it is an interesting parallel because so all of us have stories about how training didn't prepare us for real life. Nick's is honestly the most acute, which is literally in training. They went, you're never going to use this day one. You have to use this for fucking everything. It was, and I'll say this in the crosstalk. It'd be like if you went to one quarter of an accounting class, accounting 101, and then they threw you into a big four firm during audit season. Jesus. <laughs> right. said, Fuck. figure it out, chief. Oh, <laughs> you know, I uniquely understand the significant differential between those. It is basically like you showed up untrained and expected to do a job. Yes. Real quick, one thing I forgot to mention for FTO in the training. So can I just say it and then we can throw it in there? Sure. So another part of FTO is, it's not just in the field learning you know, by doing all the different calls, traffic stops, all that stuff. There's more brick work. <laughs> Which was not fun because you have to find time to do it while working as a police officer. Plus, you're not geared up for it because, I mean, you're three years and under a month past when you were like, you hadn't exercised those muscles in a long time. No, and I, I, as much as I tried to, tried to, there was still stuff that it's just really hard, especially working full time throughout that three years, to keep up with everything. So I had some of the codes still down, but not all of them. I had, I had to relearn case law, even though I could, I knew what was allowed. Or I had that feeling of, uh, I need to make sure I do this, look this up and make sure I know what it is. It was really hard to do the book work again. Well, and the thing is too, I don't think a lot of people realize with police or any kind of law enforcement, even law enforcement in the military, the amount of shit you have to know and know well. Like everybody watches TV and they think it's like on cops and it's like all tactical training and tactical entry and everything else nobody's prepared for how much paperwork there is. Nobody's prepared for how much background knowledge there has to be. Nobody's prepared for, you know, like I know for civilian law enforcement, it's very similar, but like we didn't just get to on authority, pull over somebody driving around base housing. You had to have a probable cause to stop a vehicle. Yeah. And you have to have something similar in civilian law enforcement. You have to know what that is. Like people go, oh, there's a cop instinct. Oh, you know, he pulled him over because this reason or that reason or whatever. No, you have to have an actual reason beyond I felt like that guy did something. Yeah. Now, 
there are cops that do do stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, the trouble that you get into not counting the violation of the Constitution, all that shit. Say I had a feeling, oh, there's drugs in that car. Turns out to be the fucking score of all my career or your career. If you can't articulate why you stopped that car and it's found out that it was bullshit, you lose that case. And that person goes back to doing what they're doing. Um, but that was one of the best things that uh, I learned. I learned in the academy, but from officers I worked with was the more you have memorized about case law and the laws, the more you can do to help try and prevent stuff. And it's not something every cop And does. it's a lot. It's I a mean, lot. in the military, it was a shit ton. And that's just our laws. Civilian law is massive. Yeah. Okay. So I want to redirect this back to the military briefly. Um, Shane's hiatus in between post and getting a job as a police officer reminded me that when we got to tech school, there are a lot of guardsmen that take a break in between basic training before they ever get to, to tech school. And it's really crazy because some of these people, I mean, they've been not out of the military because they're, they're the guard, but they've been at their home station drilling without any technical training for, you know, eight, nine months. And then they show up because their state pays for their spot in the school and they're guaranteed a spot while the rest of us wait. First introduction to military politics there. Uh, and, and you have all these kids who show up and like they're out of shape. They're not ready. They've lost military bearing. And I'm curious to see if, you know, the Marine Corps who doesn't have a guard equivalent has anything like that. Are there any sort of issues with reservists or things like that? You know, we say reservists are like tampons. They're only good once a month. Typically speaking... In the Marine Corps, the reservists are much more poorly trained, I would say. Not all, but some are like much more poorly trained. They're, they're basically civilians that get to play military once a month and two weeks a year. So, we have some, some good reserve units, but a, a lot of them are, are just complacent, out of shape. But because you guys go straight into SOI, I mean, I assume that everyone still has your, your boot camp bearing and, I mean... There's there's no hiatus there, right? So as far as as far as training goes, I guess I got got outside of training. You know, you you have reservists that are you know they're reservists in boot camp, then they come over to school of infantry or or MCT for for the non infantry jobs in the military or in the Marine Corps, and uh, they they go through the same infantry training that we do, but then they go home, they report to their unit month later for a weekend and then they just go back to their civilian But they life. go immediately from boot camp into training or do they have the um, delays that we have with guardsmen? So technically speaking, they there is a delay because you have what's called 10-day boot leave. And so you go on leave for 10 days. Yeah, but this is nothing like the Air Force where these people would show up nine months later mm -mm. and they, they didn't do their job or anything. They're just... As far as I know, they go straight into School of Infantry. Cool. I I, I, I can't remember. About. That's how our reservists work. Yeah. Being thrown out. 
can we cut that? Because I think there's a way to still arrest that person. I don't want to sound like an idiot. So just that that snippet, but keep the part with. So Shane, I want to specifically, while we got you here, ask you, you know, some specific, you know, training questions to, you know, see how they differ from, from us. So, you know, Blake, Blake spoke on it earlier. You know, a lot of, sometimes we go into a room and, and there's a screen and I don't remember what it was called. I think it was called snaps or snap or something. Everything's a freaking acronym in the military. But. I guarantee your acronym was not the same as ours, even yeah. if it was the same system. Of, of, of course. But essentially, there's a screen, and you get a gas-powered rifle. It's, it's like hooked up to it, like a like a gas like a like a gas tank, and it's got like sensors all over it. And there's a screen, and it'll be basically you'll be in the scenario, and this terrorist will jump out from a building with an AK, and you have to. You have to shoot him and it, your, 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 your AR fires, bang, bang, you know, your M4, bang, bang, you know, and then it like shows the shot on the screen and the guy goes, ah, and falls over. You know, is that, did you do anything like that in the police academy? Yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. Cause I, I was trying to figure this all out and, <laughs> and so some things slipped through the cracks and that's one of them. Um, so yes, we did have one of those. Um, so we had. The handgun, not the, the yeah. rifle, but uh, yeah, we would do that simulator for police-related stuff. Uh, you know, domestic violence. Yours was probably more like our MCATs because we had two. We had one that was like field situations. That's like what Frank's describing. But we also had one where we were also graded on the de-escalations because it wasn't always the job to shoot. In those situations, was yours similar to that? Yeah. So our instructors were able to dictate how it went based on how we handled it. So if you weren't death, your commands weren't correct, they would do whatever they did to make it keep going or have the person fight you. But even if you did all your commands, they still had times where there was one scenario where I show up to a domestic violence thing. And I'm immediately contacted by the husband who's the suspect. And in my, my scenario, shouting the commands, hey, can you show me your hands? Who's here with you? Blah, 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 blah. I ask, do you have any identification? Oh yeah, my wallet's back here. Okay, can you go ahead and, re and take it out and give me your ID? So in my scenario, Comes out, it's a fucking knife, and he charges me. So he gets shot. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, so. They do that same scenario to somebody else. Couple, and it's the wallet. I've seen this. A couple times later. Yeah. And same thing. Right commands, all this stuff. Oh, and can you get your wallet out and show me your identification? Oh, yeah, sure. Comes out with a wallet. The person after me shoots him. <laughs> Instructor comes in because you also debrief after everything to kind of talk about it. So we all know what's wrong with this, right? <laughs> okay. Why did you shoot him? Keep, keep in mind, he's been doing this forever. So he knows exactly what's about to come out of my classmate's mouth. Well, in Shane's, ah, 
but no situation is like the other. They do that on purpose. They yeah, they absolutely do it, of course. Absolutely, yeah. and we all knew it as soon as. Yeah. I had in MCAT, they did a you. similar one where it's like you sort of respond and the guy's drunk and whatnot, and you're yelling the commands and everything else. Which, by the way, it's weird when you're waiting to go up because you're standing in the hallway and you're hearing just all this yelling. And you're like, yeah. what the yeah. fuck is going on in there? <laughs> so it's the whole thing. And he's violent in the first one. And then I go through, I don't know, two or three more scenarios. And then at the end, it's the same guy. The same exact scenario, but they ended it differently. And he was nonviolent in that one. It's like, okay, now y'all are just screwing with me. <laughs> we had one where we were doing the uh, the training for high-risk stops. So that's where you get three cars, you line up, someone's shouting commands, everyone's got their guns on it. It's generally for serious you think this person's armed and they're going to do do you harm if you don't do it this way type of situation um we've all probably driven by or seen it so we're spending hours this day doing this right so naturally you're learning it you're doing it it's going to get monotonous but they had it pretty basic where no one was really fucking with you with it but apparently our instructor decided to change it up. Because we drive around, we do this, light them up, we do the stop. Actually, I was not in part of it, but I'm in the crowd watching. But that was how we practiced it. We drive around, do that. So this group, they're doing it. And as soon as the car, the suspect car stops and everyone's trying to get into position, the passenger just bolts just runs all the way around the building and everyone's just like frozen and then one of my classmates like five seconds later goes after <laughs> but everybody freezes including the classmate that runs after him for five seconds they're just like the fuck did he catch him no <laughs> i came around the building oh god and our instructor just goes, see, you even if you do, when you're, things can get monotonous. It's policing's like every other job. If you don't have something happen for a while and every time you do a high risk stop, you can't let yourself get complacent because that's when that instant of the person fighting or drawing the weapon can happen or the murder suspect takes off from the car and if you're compl- not prepared, He's going to get away because you waited too long to run after him. Um, but, yeah, that was pretty funny. So, bringing it back to something from security forces training that I think is probably a little unique because I don't think law enforcement or infantry touches this, but I think this actually borders on some of the technical aspects of, of Nick's job was uh, in field ops training, we had to learn to deploy various security systems, including like brake beam sensors, and actually a really cool sensor that uh, was a magnet. And the way that it worked was you would bury it in a little plastic package. And if somebody walked across it or a vehicle went by, the magnet would rise and it would close a circuit. 
So we had to bury these line wires and connect them all to the main station and then figure out how to code this stupid device so that it would actually pick up the different sensors. And we would run into all kinds of different technical issues. Lines would be disconnected. Signal would be bad. Weird things with like, if you went beyond 50 feet with the cable distance, it would have signal degradation and it wouldn't signal properly and all of that. I mean, it was just a gigantic pain in the ass. So, I mean, Nick, I would assume in your job, you dealt with all kinds of really annoying technical issues. Well, yeah, I think one of the first things to note about my career is it's one small subsection of IT. Like in just my schoolhouse, there are 30 OX1s, OX2, which was the best career field, OX3 and OX4. So that's knowledge ops, uh, cyber systems operations, cyber surety, which is like security, but not really and then programmers. But then there's even a whole nother subsection of 1X1s, 1X2s, 1X3s, and 1X4s. But kind of the crazy thing you'll encounter in the operational Air Force is that non-technical career fields don't know that. And they think, oh, you can fix anything that's a computer. But it's like, well, I was never trained on routers and switches. Did I eventually get those skills? Yeah, out of necessity. But when I showed up to a the ASOS in North Carolina, they never had comm people before. So they're like, oh, you know everything about radios. No, man, I the only radio I know is in my car. Let alone, I, I didn't know what an inhibitor was or a prick 117. So they, they throw out some huge truck one day and they're like, well, you know, these are line of sight antennas and all these things and you got to get it up and running. Like, well, no, I, I literally cannot. This is like, this is so far from my career field. I work on Windows Server 2003, keep in mind this is 2014, and because uh, that's the way the DOD rolls. <laughs> Day late and a dollar short. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Oracle Solaris and, and Oracle Database, it's, but you learn everything you can to figure out how to do those things. Like when the unit went to Iraq, they sent one IT person for an entire ASOC floor. And he was a 1X2, which is cyber transport, routers and switches. But I had, I had to teach him how to run desktop computers and server administration for essentially a, a low-level AOR to deconflict airspaces and make sure that the ops floor runs, you know, 24-7. Like, that's, it's not feasible. It's not a one-man job. But... Well, and realistically, like, I mean, for security forces, if we deploy in country, it's pretty straightforward we've got our weapon we've got our equipment we've got our this we've got our that y'all have to set up an entire fucking technical side of a base in the middle of a goddamn desert i mean the challenges associated with that are insane so here's the crazy part is that from what i understand a marine corps unit deploys as a unit you guys all go together like you know the people there air force deploys in ones and twos because we have a home station mission that we have to do day to day because I supported in Germany, United States Air Forces in Europe and Air Forces Africa. And those are actual real world missions. You have stuff that drone missions that are being flown and they're actually being commanded out of Germany. So if you go and deploy out to, you know, even someplace nice like Aldafra, I mean, you might have to learn theater battle management core system when you get there when you've never even heard of that. Um, 
I mean, there's so many little just small mission systems that you'll pick up along the way that you've never heard of. And like when you promotion test, you understand like all those things, like what is DCAPES? Deliberate crisis action planning and execution segments. But like, unless you've ever touched that, there's no reason to know it. It's such a small portion of your job. Well, the other thing that's interesting to me is so much of, you know, like it, dating back to Air Force basic training, we learned the history of it and air superiority was, you know, our secret sauce. That's how I, why we won. At this point, the U.S. military's technical superiority is one of the main things that we bring to a theater of combat. And... You know, there's the old saying, you know, an army marches on its boots. The Air Force runs on technology. Mm -hmm. If that technology is not up, insane numbers of systems won't function. Going all the way down to like, even dating back to when I was in the Air Force, I didn't file reports in physical long form unless the servers were down. Yeah, Like literally every law enforcement report is filed in a computer. Everything runs with computers. I'm sure most people don't know that the Air Force has squadrons dedicated to TDC, which is theater deployable communication. It's literally just warehouses filled with communications equipment and boxes. So you can deploy at a moment's notice and stand up a new base anywhere. And then these things are used to deconflict airspaces down there because you can't have two fighters run into each other. I mean, it all comes back down to ground level and without communication, I mean, communication systems, it doesn't happen. I think it's a really important it's really important to to tell your version of your military experience because I think a lot of people, you know, they they see what they see on the news, they see Call of Duty, they see movies, and very rarely do they get a glimpse into the more technical aspects of the military. And I think that's why it's extremely important that your short story is shared and and that we we discuss it further, you know, you know Blake myself and Shane you know even you know him as a police officer we kind of have very similar stories you know while different branches or different slightly different occupation they share a lot of similarities we vastly differ from from your story mm -hmm. so um but kind of touch on on what you said and to answer your question my unit in the military third light armor reconnaissance battalion was really kind of unique um so i can't really speak on like straight leg infantry units but we had our own comm guys okay and our own you know our own you know people like yourself um you know so we we set up a, a coc central operations command so they had computers they had uh monitoring systems they had we had something called the g boss which is this big monitoring system with cameras that can basically provide you know, security cameras for the for the base because uh, we, we were expeditionary in nature. So we were just set up on a little airfield in the middle of nowhere, Iraq. Um, so, yeah, ours ours is all internal. So we deploy as a battalion, and we're pretty much self sustained. Uh, we did have some other units that ended up, you know, coming into our our base and 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 setting up there, but. You know, in terms of our communications guys and similar jobs to yours, we, we had those all, all internal. And so they went through their own their own schoolhouse. They went through comm school, which is located in 29 Palms, which was actually the base that I happened to be stationed on. And from there, 
when they finish their school, you know, LAR or a straight leg infantry unit or another unit will say, okay, we need six comm guys. We need three of those need to be radio operators. Three of those need to be whatever other electronics or, or signal people that we need. And then they get basically they hit the fleet. They come to the fleet Marine force and, and they get their orders to whatever unit they're going to, to fulfill that mission. So I think that definitely differs. Uh, you know, it seems like you kind of were like one, two man shows, you know, attached to other. There are certainly radio operators assigned to the air forces, more combat oriented squadrons like an ASOS or a, an STS. And those guys all go to, you know, whatever your mission is. So like we were attached to the 82nd airborne at uh, Pope. So those guys all went to jump school because with missions like GRF, Global Response Force, if they had to go anywhere within 72 hours notice, you're taking your own radio guys there. Um, but I mean, for the rest of the Air Force, I mean, I think what, there's 330,000 people in, in the Air Force or whatever. Everyone else in my career feel we just fill in a, a spot, yeah. you know, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, who knows. It's an interesting juxtaposition to see what your training was like compared to our training. I mean, let me ask you a question. In, yeah. a, in a given week in SOI, how many times do you touch a rifle? I would say most weeks, every day. I touched a rifle twice in my entire enlistment. Yeah. Five years, seven months. Maybe maybe not a rifle, but a weapon system. Yeah, I mean. Of some sort. Not my thing. So whether that was a M203 grenade launcher, a, you know, 50 caliber, you know, a mod deuce machine gun, uh, an AT4 rocket. Uh, you know, we would go to, to ranges, you know, so you'd, you'd, you'd wake up in the morning, you'd, you'd do your PT, you'd go to chow, and then you would get briefed on, on what you were doing for the day. So you would, you know, we'd fill an assault pack with what we needed, uh, our gear, we'd put on all of our gear, and then we would, we would basically hump to the, to the range, you know, a couple miles, 10 miles to the, to the range. And it, you know, could be whatever kind of range it was, could be a machine gun range where we would learn to fire the M240 machine gun. Mm -hmm. And so we would learn, you know, uh, sustain rate of fire, cyclic rate of fire. We would learn target acquisition. Um, and then we would do sometimes on a given day, we could be doing like a couple day field up where we would go and we would, you know, basically be in a fighting hole and, and, uh, or, or set up, you know, a, a mounted position, like a machine gun position. And you'd have to basically draw your, your angles of fire and, and draw all of like the trees, the, this rock, you know, everything and, and know the, you would basically figure out the distances of each of these obstacles. And that way you knew how far your enemy was if they came into your field of view. Um, so that's, that's generally you know, mm -hmm. what, what my days were filled with. However, we went to tons of classes, yeah. you know, IED courses, learning, learning the ins and outs of IEDs. You know, the reason that training is important is because I, I, I want to say now I may be wrong on this, but I think, I believe two thirds of American casualties in the Iraq and Afghan wars were, were attributed to IEDs. So IEDs are a massive yes. problem. And so, you know, we, we did a lot of time on that. We did a lot of time spent learning, uh, how to use an IFAC, uh, individual first aid, like trauma kit, I believe is yep. what it stands for. Individual uh, first aid kit. First aid kit. It's a trauma, but essentially a yeah. trauma kit. 
and uh, you know, learning how to use an occlusive dressing, learning how to you know, uh, use quick clot, which for those of you who don't know what quick clot is, it's basically this, this powder that essentially cauterizes a wound, uh, learning how to put on a tourniquet, uh, learning the exact process of when to use a tourniquet, uh, you know, how to market. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You said one thing that I want to, I want to circle back to. Sure. You guys went to eat as a group. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Okay. Cause breakfast was our own responsibility. Like if you wanted to eat before class, cool. If not, whatever, then you could, you got lunch. And if you wanted you you march to lunch in a small group and then I mean, dinner was your own thing after PT. Now I, I don't remember it super well. Um, so, but from, from my understanding, we, we ate as a group for, for all meals. Hmm. Um, in the evenings we did have, you know, free time. Um, and then of course we had weekends off, you know, honestly, I look back at, at school of infantry, our, our training and probably some of the funnest two months of my military career, like seriously, absolutely incredible. Um, you know, we were in San Diego, mm-hmm. we, so <laughs> Oceanside, you know, basically San Diego. So we were we were partying so hard every single weekend, drinking underage, doing doing wild shit, and never drink underage in the military. Yeah, don't don't drink underage. But uh, question: What were what was the living arrangements like? Uh, so we were in a squad bay. So it was essentially, you know, like I'm literally four- cringing. Ugh, you Air Force <laughs> fucks. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, well, we're adults, so we're allowed to live by ourselves and eat by ourselves. Occasionally, we have a roommate, but it's a different Jesus thing. Oh, yeah, we had so, summit. We had roommates in tech school. So we, yeah, we, were in a, we were in a squad bay. So essentially, you had a big, long, rectangular room with three rows of bunk beds. We left that stuff in basic. And everybody had like a wall locker that they could store their well, gear wait, in. But and, wait, where, where would you watch TV? And like, you didn't have video games in your room? No. Or like a, a mini fridge? No, sir. No, sir. This is the Marine Corps. Well, we didn't have that even in the day. Yeah, but you know what but... Shane had that we didn't have? He got to, he got to go home at night to his house. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking And then cops. get up and go to work in the morning. Goddamn cops have it good. All right, guys, I want to hear some funny fucking stories. So who wants to go first? Who wants to tell me a crazy story from training? Ooh, I mean, it's not crazy, but I will say one thing that I never thought I would see is how present adultery is. Oh, yeah. I would see a a lot of people come and especially guardsmen. They'd be like, oh, look at this. Nice little five month vacation from the wife and kids. And then they'd hook up with, you know, another trainee. Well, not a trainee, but, you know, another tech schooler. But don't do that. It's a one-way ticket out if you get caught. So we didn't, well, you know, I was infantry. So in, in, in the infantry community, it's all men. Uh, not a lot of married guys. Not a lot of married 18, 19-year-olds. Uh, but, you know, I'd say that was our goal almost every single weekend was to get, to get pussy. No, that's something I never thought of is that the Air Force, like, there were we accepted everyone up to 27. So... Something that you probably don't see in combat arms jobs is that no one at 27 is coming in. Well, no, you'd be surprised. We had some older guys. Uh, I I can't remember how old he was at the time. I could probably look it up. But my buddy, Gasper, he was, we used to call him the grand old man of the Marine Corps. He was substantially older than us. I mean, there there are some some older guys that come in. But generally speaking, 18, 19. You know, you're coming in fresh as soon as you're 18, fresh out of high school. Uh, so, you know, you, uh, you have all this newfound freedom. You got a little money in your pocket. 
you uh, are in the best shape of your life, you think you're the coolest motherfucker and baddest motherfucker on the planet, and so your goal is basically to get fucked up and get some pussy. So, what would happen if you got caught drinking underage? Um, very rare situation scenarios would would something serious happen. It wasn't it wasn't often that you would get caught because your the leadership that would catch you would typically be like, all right, dumbass, go to bed. You know, if you got caught by your higher ups, then you're going to get into some shit. I mean, what are we talking? I mean, just a, I mean, NJP. I mean, it really depends on the scenario. I, I mean, you, you, you are, we are subject to the uniform code of military justice. You can get the book thrown at you, NJP court martial. Um, but generally speaking, that stuff is, is swept under the rug. There were many nights that we got fucked up in the barracks on a, on a weeknight oh. and, 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 you know, they, they, the, the SOI instructors would catch us and just scream no, at us. And, that, you do that in the air force, you're kicked out. Yeah. Gone. The, the, uh, the Marine Corps is a, a different animal. That's you crazy. Know? Um, you know, to, to tell a funny story. So I won't name names, but we were all kind of like gathered around the front of the squad bay. And one of our instructors was asking us technical questions. Just, I don't know why he was just doing it. And he asked a buddy of mine, I'll just, I'll say his nickname, Dirty D. Uh, he asked him what the caliber, what caliber the M4 shot. Okay. We all know that's 5.56 five, NATO. Totally. Okay. Yep. 100%. Maybe, maybe not Nick, but, but 5.56 five, NATO. And I believe he looked him dead in the face and said 5.72, whatever fucking made up caliber that is. And another kid basically was like, oh, you fucking moron, blah, 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 this and that. Yeah, well, Dirty D went and punched him right in the face, right in front of the instructor. You know, nothing happened. You know, this is the Marine Corps. Stuff like that, for the most part, especially in the infantry community, that stuff kind of flies. So, I would say probably the most <laughs> fucked up thing that I encountered. I didn't witness this. <laughs> I would say the most fucked up thing I encountered. And while I didn't witness it, it was very well known. So, tech school is your first taste of freedom, as we've touched on. Yep. And after class, you go, you change into your PT gear and you go to PT. And it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to try and, you know, slip out of PT and not go. Maybe get someone else to sign in on accountability for you or whatever. So, the MTLs, military training leaders, who are like a, a E5 or 6, would go to each room and they'd, they'd open it up to make sure that you weren't in your room hiding. Well, fucking rooms. <laughs> a couple of guys decided that they didn't want to be in the Air Force anymore. And well, these two dudes also happened to be boyfriends. Oh, so Lord. they said, what's going on right now in 2010? Don't ask, don't tell. MTL walks in, dude's balls deep in the other one. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's a. So what happened to them? One way took it right back, right out. Oh, they got I mean, processed. Yeah, that was out. a that's don't ask, don't tell. Couldn't be gay. <laughs> so we had this kid who went UA, and for for our audience that doesn't know what that means, unauthorized absence. You may know it as AWOL, absent without leave. Essentially, running away from the military. Well, this guy stole his plates, his his bulletproof plates that go into the flak jacket. And 
sold them on like ebay or some <laughs> shit and he ran away but he was in oceanside which is literally the town outside of base it's where it's where you can see all the dumb boot marines go you can always spot a boot marine because they're walking around with their boots on with their with jeans they're wearing combat boots with jeans they probably bloused them too yeah with <laughs> with their shirt tucked in with the most obnoxious camouflage backpack and their dog tags hanging out looking like a bag of ass anyway so this kid he steals all this shit. He goes UA. He sells his stuff on eBay. They track his ass down. Me and my best friend, Stefan, we actually find his ass in Oceanside. We find his UAS. And he's just sitting there at this, like, internet cafe. I think, like, play, like playing Call of Duty or some shit. So, yeah, his ass ended up getting caught and 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 brought back. And, and he came back. When they, when they searched his wall locker, he had, like, a bunch of live rounds and... And all kinds of fucked up shit hit in his wall locker. Have you guys ever had health and comfort inspections? Oh, yeah, of course. So we're in a squad bay. So we had health and comfort inspections. So essentially what that means is they come and rip apart all your shit and find all the stuff you're not supposed to have. Porno mags, live rounds, uh, all kinds of shit. So they, they make a pile. Drugs, whatever. It all goes into a pile. And and essentially they're like, oh, it's amnesty time if, if you... If you if you bring it up front right now, you won't be in trouble. So all of a sudden, shit starts getting passed forward. There's a straight up inflated blow up doll sitting on the pile. There's live rounds. There's bottles of booze. There's bags of weed. There's there's all kinds of fucked up shit in this pile. Well, no one got in trouble for it. <laughs> but there was a giant mound. And on top of this mound is this root, like really crude, like really shitty blow up doll that we ended up throwing around the squad bay. So that was Frank's. No, no, yeah, no, that no. was Frank's. No, no, no. I had a pocket pussy. Nah, just kidding. I wasn't that desperate. You know what to say about the Marine Corps uniforms, panty droppers. I apologize to my wife for anything she hears on this podcast. I mean, so I've got a tamer drivers. story from training that's actually somewhat educational for anybody that ends up in Air Force uh, Security Forces Tech School. So, me and my one buddy are walking over to uh, the, uh, I think it was called the Skylark. It was like a rec center that was on Lackland. And the reason we're walking is you are not allowed to operate a vehicle while in training, even if you have one, except for the TDYs, which are basically people that have come over from other services. We had an army guy, a Navy guy, a Marine Corps guy that uh, decided they wanted to switch to the Air Force and be security forces. So they were in our tech school with us, but they didn't bunk in the dorms or anything like that. They bunked in TDY housing and they had their vehicles and all that. So we're walking along and up comes the road, a car it was a piece of shit, 1980s Cutlass Supreme. And the driver starts honking at us. We stop and we look. It's another airman who's in training with us driving one of the TDY sergeant's cars. Female airman. We're like, what the fuck? And she's like, hey, you guys want to ride to the Skylark? And I look at my buddy. I'm like, I ain't touching this shit. He's like, okay, same. So we keep walking. Three, four days go by. I'm sitting in a classroom. And all of a sudden, the uh, lead instructor, tech sergeant, 
walks in, stops the senior airman that's instructing, turns out to the classroom and calls off three names. One's the female airman, one's my buddy, and one's me. Go out in the hallway. Okay. What the fuck did I do? I haven't pissed anybody off this week. It was a rare week. So I'm standing out in the hallway, and they take us down. They take statements. And I get our lead instructor, tech sergeant, and he sits down, and he goes, so I want to ask you if you know anything about an incident in which airman so-and-so was seen driving a car. And I look at him. I think about it for a minute. I'm like, yep, I saw that. <laughs> and he's like, what happened? I explained to him exactly what happened. It's like, write it down here. Write it all down. Okay. Go back to class. Go back to class. Thought that was the last thing I was going to hear of it. At the end of tech school, I get an LOA in my file because I was the only one that filed the truthful statement because <laughs> everybody else told an incorrect lie about what had happened, <laughs> none of which matched. So here's the educational parts of this story. One, do not drive in tech school. Two, do not get into a relationship with a TDY sergeant who's married. Three... If you find yourself in a room and someone asks you a question that alludes to the fact that they obviously know all, all of the, the facts truth. of the matter, answer entirely truthfully. So, yes, all that's true. But now you can drive in tech school. No kidding. Yeah, you can have a car. And what's interesting enough, if your it probably depends on the tech school because ours was a little soft, more strict. So soft. If your tech school is over six months and you're married, your spouse can come and you can live off base. No kidding. Yeah, pretty crazy. Probably ours wouldn't have qualified because ours was only 10 weeks. So I don't want to change the subject, but I also don't want to forget to tell you guys a very enjoyable story. So there are people who are really enjoying this podcast, and a lot of my coworkers at work are starting to listen to it. And so, as you know, we give our little intro. You know, I'm Frank, uh, private first class in military, infantry, blah, blah, blah. And so at the end of the day, the other day, one of my coworkers comes up to me and I told him I was going to tell the story just to embarrass him a little bit. So he comes up to me and he goes, oh, I'm Frank. I'm, I'm inventory one. And I'm like, what the fuck is inventory one? He's like, dude, that's what you did in the military, man. You were inventory one. I was like, I was like, I'm inventory. What the fuck? You mean infantry? <laughs> He's like, yeah, infantry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hell yeah, brother, inventory one at your service. <laughs> and so one of my coworkers is this badass army dude. And so now every time we see each other, we just salute each other and say, inventory one. <laughs> so I just want to close it out here by thanking Shane for coming on the podcast. It's been great to have him. It's really insightful to, to get, you know, a different set of eyes, you know, police officer. Uh, and yeah, we're definitely going to have him on next episode and uh, talk about, uh, you know, life in our units and he could talk about what life in his unit was like. So thank you for coming on, Shane. Thank you for asking me to come talk on it. Um, it's been great being in the background of the last few that we've recorded, um, you know, helping Sean produce this and working with you guys. Um, I look forward to coming back whenever you guys want me to 
give that take from my experience. Um, yeah, it's fun. Hope you all enjoy it and hopefully you all enjoy my what I brought to it and want to hear more of it. If not, let us know and I won't talk again. Awesome, guys. Well, that's this episode of Tango Bravo. Thanks for tuning in. We love Shane. Who doesn't? <laughs> this is Tango Bravo. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Today, we're going to go over the top 10 porn stars in history. Oh, I finally. <laughs> this is Frank remembering shit for no reason at all. Well, it's totally unrelated. One time oh. it's, kind of, really it's kind of funny because I told my mom we were doing a podcast and videos. I finally told her and she's like, I just don't want you to do porn. Porn's illegal. You know that? I'm like, I'm like, mom, it's legal in all 50 states. She's like, that's not why they arrest all those dudes for porn. And me and my stepdad were like, yeah, that's that's a different kind of porn. That's for the kitty diddlers. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what, mom? Let's just not talk about porn. Right? We are not doing porn ever. Yeah, just have her have one conversation with Blake. <laughs> she was very concerned.